Hello and welcome to Radio SGN. I am uh, one of your hosts, Lindsay Anderson. Joining me is your other host, Benny Loy. My pronouns are she, her. And I'm she, they. And this is our show. So if you're lonely and you're listening to this because you just want to hear some voices, I'm glad you chose ours. It's not something I would do because I don't like the sound of my voice, but... Me neither. I I cringe. Some people have complimented me on my voice, but I don't, I don't get it. I think that I sound horrendous. <laughs> but your voice is super cute, though. No, I <laughs> have to tell you. I had a traumatic incident with my voice recently where, okay, so I first started doing this podcast, like, episode three, back when it was Ash and Hannah who used to write here. We recorded our first episode together. Hannah was like, wow, your voice is so good. I bet you're a great singer. (laughs) I do not carry a tune. The last, literally, I don't sing in front of anybody. I won't even sing in front of my partner. Like, I sing if I know I'm absolutely by myself in, like, a soundproof room. Yeah. And the last time I tried to sing was, like, in middle school when I, like, recorded myself singing something. I know what I sound like. And it was so horrible. I (laughs) mashed whatever device I recorded it on. And I just, like held on to that compliment from Hannah for the last three years. And it's been like secretly feeding my ego where I'm like, damn, maybe I would be a good singer. You know, who knows? I'm not going to do it. Who knows? You know, shout out to our one of our writers, Ian Crowley. Uh, Me and him worked on this like parody video of Try That in a Small Town by Jason Aldean. We wrote Try That in Seattle. So uh, check that out. It's on YouTube and TikTok. It's horrible. But if you want to see me in Jason Aldean drag, check that out. And the one problem is we needed somebody to sing the song. And I was like, okay, I'll try it. And I spent two hours singing this song. And it was the worst thing I've ever heard. There was no hope of it being good. I like, I sent it to Ian and I was like, I know that some people are like, oh, I can't sing. And then they like belt something out and you're like, I'm not saying this for like a backhanded compliment. This is horrid. And then Ian listened to it and he was like, yeah, this is horrid. And I ended up calling my sister who did like five years of choir and having her sing the song. And so it's jarring when I watch the video now because it's my sister <laughs> out of my mouth. Mm-hmm. And I know I think like the average person maybe wouldn't know, but I do. And it freaks me out. So it's, <laughs> that was a tangent. You, have, you ever say something and you swear to God that it's your your mother's voice? Yes. I hate it when that happens. I have a mom voice. I sometimes like use my mom voice with my dogs and I go, I sound just like Sherry. Oh my God. It always happens to me too, like right after my mom comes to stay with me and I like pick up some of her like her voice. Yeah. And I catch it. But also my mom has a very condescending tone in her voice. <laughs> she sounds like yeah. my partner's boss, my partner on their first day at their new job, they were like, my boss sounds like your mom. I can't describe it. And we figured it out. It's just that it's a condescending white woman. <laughs> so when I catch myself doing that, I'm like, oh, man. See, my mom is like bossy. And so, so yeah, I sometimes do that where, you know, <laughs> I want to try to avoid using my, my mom voice. But every now and again, I'll just catch myself just being all like to my dogs. That's unnecessary. It is always with the dogs, too. Yeah. Well, the one thing my mom used to always do was mix up our names. I feel like that's such a mom thing. But she would always call my sister Maggie, which was our dog's name. She would call the dog Ainsley. She'd be like, Ainsley, stop. And it's the dog on the table. And we're like, what? They were both very naughty, so it made sense. Here's another tangent for you, because we might as well before we get into any of the dark news. What about like cute little like nicknames your parents would give you growing up? 
My mom would call me Betharoo, like kangaroo. That's cute. My dad would call me uh, Cookie Crumble. Mine are embarrassing. My dad called me like Lindsay Poops. That's not even cute. That's gross. My sister at least got to be like Inzy Cakes or something. <laughs> I was just when my dad called us when we were like really little and then we outgrew it. And then I was just, I don't know, like bud. Yeah, I, I use kiddo all the time. I'm the oldest out of like all of my cousins and my, my siblings. So, you know, I have a really bad habit that if I've kind of grown to really care about someone who I kind of perceive as younger than me, even if they're not younger than me, if I've taken kind of like a caretaker mentality with this person, I always end up calling them kiddo. And sometimes they end up so offended. They're just like, I'm not a kiddo. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, it means I love you. That's cute, though. Mm -hmm. I'm still trying to think. I had, okay, it wasn't a nickname that was mine. But when I was like three, I decided I was going to give my grandma a nickname. And um, I was just sitting at shit like a bar counter. And I was sitting there with my cousins. And we were eating crackers. And I just... The most original name I came up with was Grandma Cracker. <laughs> I loved that it drove her crazy, so I would just call her Grandma Cracker all the time. And her revenge for me was that she would call me Cade because I was like my best friend when I was a little kid. Was this my mom's friend's kid named Cade? So I guess yeah, those are my nicknames: Lindsay Poops and Cade. Oh man, that's funny though. All right, onto the darkness. Yeah, if you enjoyed that fun little trip into our childhood. Yeah, a little uplifting moment before we get real low. So unfortunately, many of you have probably already heard about this news. But in California, a woman by the name of Laura Carlton, she was 66 years old, had a large family, and she was a clothing store owner. And unfortunately, someone took issue with her having a pride flag waving in front of her business, and he killed her for it. So it's a really sad time. She was a huge ally. It's beyond words. And we give our condolences to her family and to her community. At this time, the suspect is also presumed to be dead. They were killed by police when they came to the scene. But no, it is, it's just a horrible story to come out of. This kind of increased attack on the LGBTQ community. And obviously, this is a Seattle Gay News podcast. We talk about gay news a lot. <laughs> and pretty recently, we were talking about a story where presidential hopeful Ron DeSantis was kind of running on an anti-LGBTQ campaign. And as much as we kind of poke fun at Ron DeSantis, that is very, very dangerous rhetoric. I... 100% believe that politicians like him need to be held accountable for the loss of life, both with this woman, Lori Carlton, as well as with the news we reported on last week of O'Shea Sibley being murdered at a gas station. It's a culture war. And I don't mean that figuratively. This is, you know, people are dying for loving people, for showing allyship. I mean, Lori Carlton isn't even a member of the queer community. She was just a supporter and she stood up for that belief and it cost her her life. I think that these people that push those agendas of anti-LGBTQ hate, the idea that LGBTQ people are groomers or pedophiles or in any way corrupt people have blood on their hands. They are inspiring these hateful acts and they need to come forward and condemn the people that do this. We need clear messages from people on the right saying that 
this kind of violence and hatred and murder is not justified, is not what they are calling for. Any person who cannot come forward with that sentiment is complicit. We need to start, you know, confronting this when we see this coming from any politicians, coming from any right wing influencers, anybody who is out in public and is spreading this misinformation, this dehumanizing rhetoric about the LGBTQ plus community. We need to immediately push back on that and tell them that that is murderous rhetoric and that they shouldn't be using any kind of platforms to spread that. And we need to, you know, do something about them having platforms if they're willing to spread that kind of rhetoric because it is killing people. It's taking valuable members of our community away from us. And like we see with Lori, it doesn't just affect uh, our community, it affects allies and their families. I mean, we even saw this with the, the Q Club shooting, where there were people attending that drag show who were allies, and now their families are missing a valuable family member because of that hateful rhetoric. I think you brought up a good point too, Benny, when you mentioned that we need to not be giving these hateful people airtime. And I think that that's a really important thing to mention. I know that obviously we don't really do that here as much because I wouldn't say it's a bias, but we <laughs> have our niche. But, you know, it's something that you hear a lot from major news networks is, you know, they want to promote both sides. What do you do when one side is calling for and encouraging the killing of people, like people that aren't even in the community and aren't condemning that? Like, it is dangerous to give a voice to that side, you know, and it also equates the two that shouldn't be equated. Believing that love is love, believing that trans lives matter is not and should not be considered a controversial opinion. And when you the voices of people that believe otherwise, you put controversy behind what should just be an accepted fact. There are a lot of people, I think, that have contributed to this increase in LGBTQ violence. Of course, it is the people that kill, but it's also those oppressive ideologies politicians, religious leaders, people that won't speak forward for love and tolerance, and even people in the media who may believe similarly to us, but still give a voice and a platform to the homophobes. So yeah, we need to revise our understanding of what a call to action is, because just because there, you know, there are some who are getting away with this just by avoiding saying, you know, go out and hurt these people. The fact that they're saying things like, they're coming after your children. You need to do something. You know, that is a call to action. That is yeah. a call to action. That is a call to hurt people. Or even things like saying there were good people on both sides, like Trump back the Black Lives Matter movements. And don't be afraid to pick a side, you mm -hmm, know, mm -hmm. to quote the great American musical Hamilton. You know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You stand for nothing. What do you fall for? Yeah. You need to stand for queer rights and tolerance. And if you see something, you should say something. We we got to push back on this. You know, if somebody is spreading this rhetoric and you're in a position where, you know, you believe this person isn't going to harm you if you push back, if you're in a safe place with people that are going to support you, do what you can and speak up about it and tell that person that they're wrong, that what they're spreading is hurting people. But like you said, too, it, make sure you're in a safe space. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Make sure that you are careful. You know, you never know if somebody could be armed. Like with O'Shea Sebley, this person was armed with a knife. 
It is so important to, yes, stand up for our community, but stand up for your own safety. Prioritize your safety because your voice is powerful and we need you here. So just take care of yourselves. Check in on your friends. Check in on your Check in on your supportive ally mothers because nobody is out of reach when it comes to this kind of thing. All right. On to something a little less dark. Is this less dark? Our town is on fire. Oh, yeah. Nah. Maybe it's light because of all the fire. We're in a constant cycle of everything's getting better and worse at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. It is. So how are you, first of all, Benny, holding up? Um, for anybody wondering at home, me and Benny are both from Spokane, Washington, currently in the middle of about four major uncontained fires. They've evacuated several of the outlying towns. They're mostly rural communities right now that are up in flames, which is devastating for people's heads. Uh, a lot of large animals find air quality, though, is terrible for everyone. Yeah, if you think it's bad here, it's it's dangerous, dangerous levels. And we have no idea, like, you know, what's all in that smoke. I mean, we're seeing yeah. the same thing in Maui right now, where People are afraid of asbestos and other things that could be in the air because of those fires. So just be safe out there. Mask up. Maybe even put a bandana over that mask. Stay indoors. Keep your pets indoors. Yeah, seriously. How's your family doing, Benny, over in Spokane? Do you have family over there still? Not anymore. Most of them moved okay. out, but I do have a lot of friends. They're holding up. They're trying. But it is tough. It is tough. It's especially tough for community members that have health issues. I have several friends in yeah. Spokane who have different health issues, including breathing issues. So it's it's tough out there. Most of actually all of pretty much my family is over in Spokane still and the outlying areas. And my sister, her entire town was evacuated. So her and like three of her friends are staying with my mom right now. They've also brought with them two additional dogs, two additional cats, and my sister's fish, Reginald, who she has had since she was 15, and this fish has now survived a fire evacuation. Wow. Yeah, she won him at, like, a state fair. It's such a wild thing. But, yeah, it's just a lot checking out on people. Whole units have been moved to Eastern State Hospital. They're going to wait and see if that hospital can stay. And, yeah, it's just, it's absolutely terrifying. So, um, listeners, if any of you are in Spokane, up. Uh, Take care of yourself. Take care of your pets. Keep an eye on the news reporting of evacuation zones. There's still places that are not evacuating just yet, but they are saying that you need to be ready. Check the air index and do what you can to get out of there. You know, communicate with people, get out of there. Try to find whatever way you can to, to get your pets out there with you wherever it's safe. I, I know that it's not preferable if you don't have like a cat crate, if you have cats. But one thing that I did when I was years and years ago in an apartment that the alarms went off is I didn't have a cat crate, but I did have a pillowcase and that worked wonders. So do what you got to do to make sure that you and your family, including your furry family, are, are safe and with you. Yeah. And uh, for anybody over here that maybe has the ability to donate, there are a lot of organizations. Uh, I think they're specifically asking for people to donate through the Red Cross to just help provide Food, water, shelter, bring out all of these people, all of these pets. There's going to be, hopefully, fires will be out soon. But following that, there's going to be a huge animal displacement issue for sure. My sister reported just seeing dogs running around everywhere. So oh. if you're able to help in any way, 
So yeah, mask up if you have any kind of respiratory issues because the smoke can really bother you. Even if you don't, just, you know, yeah. yeah. The air index says that it's hazardous. Mask up. Only stay outside for as long as you are supposed to because at the very least, you don't want to get a headache from inhaling all that smoke. Yeah. I mean, and that's like the equivalent of smoking however many packs a day. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, that's our bad news. (laughs) Uh, We're going to go to a quick interview. So stick around. It's a really great interview, really great conversation. And then we'll be back with some better news, maybe? Question mark? Maybe. Hello and welcome back to Radio SGN. Uh, this is me, Lindsay, and joining me today is local Seattle comedy producers slash childhood friends, Annie X and Mary Hall. You can catch them producing all kinds of different comedy shows around Seattle. Uh, their newest one, The Comedy Garden, is on Wednesdays. It's an LGBTQ open mic at Lush Bar in Belltown. You can also check out Mary's Roast Show every first Wednesday at the Rendezvous, Merchant's Cafe at the Comedy Cave, and every Thursday they also do an open mic at the Comedy Cave as well. So, Mary and Annie, how are you guys doing today? Really good. Doing great. Doing great. I just got to ask, you're both super busy with comedy production. What made you want to get into producing shows in Seattle? Do you want to go first? You should go first. I should go first? Okay. Yeah, so... I started watching local comedy about like a year ago and I really wanted to get involved, but I was like, I don't know if I want to be a comedian. And so I was like, wow, I should I should just start producing shows. And every show is like a little art project for me. And that's what keeps me in the scene, honestly, and meeting tons of really cool people. And so that's why it, it keeps me around. I really love comedy and learning a lot about it meeting a lot of new people. Yeah. What about you, Annie? I got into comedy. Me and Mary started hanging out a lot recently, like the last couple months, like four or five months, right? Something like that. And she was really into comedy. So I started hanging around comedy and I like the people I was meeting and I like the environment. I've always been drawn to comedy, like making you know jokes in my personal life and stuff like that. And so it seemed like a natural progression from there. Just to like, hey, this is something I should explore. I, I'm a very creative person, but I, I have ADHD. And so I, I like jumped between like 40 projects. And I think like the community aspect of comedy and producing comedy gives me like something to like focus on and like external motivation to like be involved in and continue to work on it. If that makes sense, I have no idea. No, that makes total sense. As somebody with ADHD as well, I totally get that. And yeah. <laughs> it's a big draw to comedy too. You can like mm-hmm. kind of embrace the weird about mm-hmm. yourself and it's something to celebrate, which is... Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I guess speaking of celebrating like what makes you cool or weird or special, one thing that is really unique about your new show at the, the Comedy Garden is that it is LGBTQ focused, right? What made you guys want to start like a specifically LGBTQ focused open mic? We got a lot of, I'm trying to think of how to phrase it. Requests. Requests. In the scene. For a mic that's specifically catered towards women and the LGBTQ, as opposed to like the a lot of the current spaces are filled with those types of people. And so even in my short time in comedy and like the four or five months that I've been around, and I've heard a bunch of people talk about it. And that, that was really the main drive, it's just like a continuous like, hey, we want more spaces like this. People coming up to Mary and me I'm in the area. Hearing that and kind of like going from that point, like, oh, we should do this. Yeah. Like a lot of folks in the scene 
like because I produce a lot of different shows, mm-hmm. they come up to me and give me tons of feedback. And one of the main things was like they want spaces where like the women in particular feel more comfortable doing stand up without like feeling weird, like being surrounded by tons of like men and everything. And so I just thought like, oh, yeah, I have this really cool spot in Belltown Lush Bar. The owner loves new community events and so brought it up to her and she was completely down she loves like fostering lgbtq folks and yeah she does like tons of different things like drag shows there too and so she was completely on board and hence the comedy garden so yeah nice i love that and so i've been to lush bar to see your mic a couple of times but for any of our listeners that maybe haven't had a chance to go by there would you mind kind of describing what the atmosphere is like yeah, it's really cool. It's like a little dark in there, but there's tons of like neon green lights full of plants and really cute candles and artwork from the community. How would you describe it? I think it's like a very kind of foresty vibe. And there's like that local art that you can buy. You can purchase the art on the walls. Yeah. And so it's it's a nice mix of like Sierra's flavor and then like supporting, I think, the local art community. I think it's nice. Super cool. It is, it's such a great inviting space. So definitely check that out, listeners, if you're looking for just a great show to go to on Wednesdays. And then I had a couple just comedy questions for y'all because you're in the comedy scene. First, who are some of your favorite just comedy influences? They could be like professionals, SNL people, or yeah, local people, if, if there's anybody that comes to mind. Locally right now, my favorite is Mary Lou Gambu. She kills. I love her so much. I like a lot of like absurd stuff and like surreal stuff. Like Eric Andre? Yeah. I didn't know if I should say that. <laughs> but like Eric Andre. I love Eric Andre. Okay. Yeah. Like Eric Andre. And I, I used to watch a lot of like short form comedy and the comedy videos on like YouTube and stuff. And, like various. A lot of that's surreal and like on TikTok and stuff. So that's a lot of my inspiration is just like kind of the absurd points of comedy. I don't have any specific people outside of Eric Andre, but just kind of that. I love roasts. I can't name anyone like off the top of my head, but like roast type shows, like I just feel like it's so funny because at the end of the day, like you won't roast someone you don't know. It's all out of love. Mm. So like, I really like that. Famous comedians like Eddie Murphy kills me. I think he's so funny. I did want to bring up because Annie, you mentioned like uh, short form videos like TikTok and YouTube, which is something that I think is becoming very well discussed in the comedy community is how to move forward when um, shows like classic stand-up might seem a bit dated. Do you feel that you bring influences from kind of this younger vibe of comedy in a way with, you know, absurdist humor? I think it's something that I try to keep in mind. A key thing you have to be aware nowadays is like the, the influence of social media on like the success of your events and of you as a comedian. And so there's like another level of like, instead of just making jokes for the people in front of you, you also have to make jokes that can be cut into 30 to 60 second clips and put on the internet. And when you think of like making uh, shows, you need content that you can put onto the internet to get people to see. It's like a lot of the stuff you're doing, I think is the same, but you have this additional layer of context that you need to think about when you are doing those things. And so I think it definitely changes things. I mean, that, that's, I guess, how I approach it, because I, like I said, I'm new to comedy, right? So when I think of things, I'm thinking of, like, shorter bits, like one minute, two minute bits. 
or when you're thinking about producing and content, like, hey, how can we get content? Because you're not supposed to like record people. Yeah, you're not supposed to record people's sets and put them online without permission, obviously. That's your uh, <laughs> creative property, basically. When I'm like producing a show and I want to like maybe get more stuff online about it and promote it online, I'll try to m- maybe have like an improvised section of the show or maybe like an interview or something. There might be a funny moment within that and I could use that for promotional material to keep growing the show that I'm producing. Yeah. yeah. So you're adding like extra layers onto like the show just to get that content. Yeah. And it's fun too because it, it does break up like when you're listening to like 20 minutes of stand-up straight, you can start zoning out or something. So it's like, it'll mm. give a break for the audience to come back to like engagement. You were talking about doing like improvised bits. Do either of you have a background in improv comedy? No, not at all. I used to produce a show called Cheat Day. I don't do it anymore. I handed it off to the other folks that were working on it with me. But that was a really fun mic that had like improvised sets based off of slides that we would write prior to the show. And we never recorded that, but that's a great example of something that could be easily recorded, thrown online, chopped up into like short. I've seen shorts. I've seen videos of people who've gone to Cheat Day on their Instagrams. Oh, so yeah. people record themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a really great spot to like really learn improvised stand up mm-hmm. because like right now I think especially because of the social media situation, mm-hmm. like a lot of crowd work gets put online because it's not your actual written material. You don't want to necessarily throw away your material. So like just recording the crowd work stuff and putting that online to promote yourself has been going around. So like a lot of improvised stuff is like really coming up in comedy right now. Or I mean, I'm sure it's always been, but just because of social media, it's like really in your face. (laughs) I don't have any background, at least, you know, in improvised comedy. I've watched a lot of like streams stuff like that and like clips from the internet of like people and i think that's kind of there's a little vibe you know streaming is like an improvised comedy scenario but i think in some way like you you sit around making jokes with your friends and that's improvised comedy and i spent a lot of time with like D that's gonna yeah, be yeah, absolutely absolutely spent a lot of time and you know like discord and sky just like sitting around making jokes for like hours and so yeah. i think it kind of influences how i see this like section of comedy i think Absolutely. And I think that, like you were saying, with the wave of how anything can kind of be added on social media, you know, it expands who really is a comedian because you Mm -hmm. can just make a quick video of yourself talking at your camera, making jokes, and it'll get viewed probably way more than anybody's stand up set at an open mic will. Yeah. Like beams, you know, like, yeah. That's another, because I think that. That's comedy nowadays is, is memes. Like that's what people, they look at and what they they um, consume is memes. And I don't feel like we see it enough, but I feel like meme humor is going to make its way into like stand-up. It probably has like in like little bits and stuff, but like a lot of that is surreal and all that is absurd. Like short form, like really like one line, you know, boom, boom type thing. And I feel like I don't see that enough, but I feel like with like type of people who are coming of age now, like myself and people younger than myself, that's like what we see as like comedy. And like with like streaming and videos and stuff like you mentioned, it's like these smaller bites that are a lot of times improvised. It's like somebody made a joke and put it on a picture and it's like, oh, let me put it on the internet. (laughs) And that's comedy. Yeah. So really quick, uh, are the both of you, do you identify as like Gen Z or like millennial? I'm technically a millennial, but a lot of my friends are very young. So I feel like I get 
pulled into a lot more Gen Z mm-hmm. culture. I'm not like, I don't know, you know, those like millennial starter packs. <laughs> yeah. I look at them. And I'm like, I am not this. But then you look at it like a Gen Z starter pack and I'm like, I am definitely not this either. So mm-hmm. I have no idea. So I'm 1996, I'm 27, and that's like the cutoff. Like it's sometimes in like the Gen Z, it's sometimes not. I think that like a Zillennial or something like that is like, but I do consider myself more Gen Z. Like I grew up on the computer and on the internet, like since I was like eight or nine or something. Yeah, for sure. And I feel like that has really shaped my persona. I I feel like you're very Gen Z. Yeah. And I feel like you're definitely a little more millennial, but not millennial. (laughs) You're in the middle. My hair is parted on the side. So, <laughs> yeah. Do you think that where you both kind of fit and identify on that generational spectrum really impacts uh, the comedy you produce and like oh, what you sure, think yeah. is funny? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, because I feel like definitely Annie leans more towards the new comedy stuff. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> like sometimes it flies <laughs> in my head. So, yeah, because I think when I try to write, so there's obviously like i mentioned like trying to be you know my influences because you know i grew up watching like older comedy and stuff like that of like stuff but then also being on the internet and a lot of stuff that i laugh at it being like you know like the short form memes and stuff and so i think that the growing up is like that middle point i think there's another thing to add something new on to it i think for me there's always like a social consciousness too with the things that i try to do because there's, there's a line of like oh being absurd and being like not like offensive but like outrageous like like unexpected while not being offensive right finding that line yeah. where i can say something that's like, oh why did you say that but not be like oh you made me feel bad for saying that thing right finding that line and then like being like right before the line or right on that line the threat fill it's like mm-hmm. that's kind of where our generation i feel like kind of sits at it's like hey we're being absurd and outrageous, but we're trying to not be offensive and make people feel bad. So everyone can be absurd and outrageous. Yeah, I totally get that. And I think that goes along with like why having a queer open mic is so important because mm-hmm. it's a safe space where as an audience member, you can go and know that you're probably not going to be well heckled for right. or punched down against identities that you hold, which honestly is a bar for a lot of people in the comedy world both wanting to like get into comedy and wanting to go to shows and enjoy it i know i've experienced that because i've gone to a lot of these open mics and a lot of like straight cis men have like trans jokes and i'm like that's not really and they're they're always offensive too it's never like a like a fun joke because like i think there's a level of like <laughs> fun joke but think there's a level of, like you can make jokes about identities that aren't your own if it's like a shared experience or if it's something respectful but then if it's like oh like trans women are predators blah, 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 and it's like that's not funny yeah no, that's not funny and it was, like, it was a lot of people but i've seen that in like the four months i've been in involved in the comedy and going to open mics there's a lot of that yeah and a lot of like yeah. these jokes that are just straight like offensive towards identities yeah, and it's like as a producer, it's really hard to navigate, 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 navigate the environment. Yeah, like because you don't want to take away anyone's creative freedom, right? And like <laughs> to them, they're like, "I worked on this joke, blah blah blah." But it's also like we're trying to grow comedy, you know. And those types of jokes, funny or not, like hold comedy back and prevent people from wanting it in our city, and it makes our jobs really hard and stressful. I have to like really pay attention to l- and worry that someone's going to say something. Mm-hmm. Something's going to say something fucked up on one of your shows. Yeah. Be responsible then, for the thing. Right. And then I have to go like talk to the venue owner and like have to go talk to that person and everything. And it's like, I just don't want to have to do any of that, but it comes with the job. So yeah, the last. 
It's like a, it's simultaneously like a challenge, but like the nice thing is that like we're a very socially conscious area of the country, probably the world. Really. Yeah. So it's like, you're constantly, you have to deal with this, but like it's the environment I'd rather be in than the environment where it's a bunch of straight cis men making like trans women or ugly jokes or something. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. Rather be here than there. Absolutely. Yeah. 100% agree. I think that the scene up here, Portland, maybe San Francisco, kind of the most inclusive. And I- then you'll still find a dozen transphobes getting way too much airtime. Like I said, I've, I've been here for four months and I've, I've been acquainted. <laughs> I'm so sorry, by the way. That's just, God, they're everywhere. It's like, they're like the rats. <laughs> you can't get rid of them. So real quick, before we wrap up, I did want to ask a little bit about your personal history with each other because you are childhood friends. How long have you been friends? Over a See. decade, like since we're 27, so I'm like mid-teens, which I still count as childhood to clarify. It's been like 12, 13 years. Yeah, we met in junior high. Yeah, oh like I grade. Yeah, that was like the earliest moment yeah. we met. Yeah. <laughs> Did you grow up in the Seattle area together? No, we're from Puyallup. Well, that's kind of the Seattle area. <laughs> no, it's not. It's the but Seattle metropolitan area. <laughs> you can put it out of the way. <laughs> my dad drove from you all up to Seattle to work. People do that. It's crazy. <laughs> that is crazy. Yeah. Were you were you both into comedy as kids? No, not at all. Like, I honestly hated comedy as a kid because just like as a kid, my idea was why is this person putting themselves out there? And like, what if they don't laugh? Like, I just thought that was so terrifying as a child. I didn't really watch stand-up or anything like that as a child or anything. I just got into it recently in the last like year and a half. I wasn't like specifically into stand-up, but my TV was forever on Comedy Central on forever. So I saw a lot of stand-up and you know, it's funny, you know, I grew up watching that obviously, as I said, into like memes and short form comedy from that point. So into comedy adjacent, it was adjacent to me and I was into things that were adjacent to it. Oh yeah. And like, I had this neighbor Who's, who was also our friend. I would go over to his place and we would watch Comedy Central, like SNL and uh, like Tosh.0. And I'd just <laughs> not understand what was going on. Because I don't know, this, the jokes are just so complicated kids, mm-hmm. I guess. There's I, definitely an element of like growing up of like, what, what are they, what are what they, are they, they talking, talking about? Yeah. What's going on? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what was the original question? My bad. Oh. I was just uh, about how you grew up, how you met, and uh, if you guys were into comedy back then. Yeah. No, yeah, we met in uh, junior high. We had a class together, I believe. I don't know. We really met through uh, playing D&D as kids. I had this group of friends, this little, like, maybe 10-kid group of friends that, like, we all did a lot of stuff together, watch movies, just typical kid stuff, and we really... We just came together and did D&D one time at my parents' place and Annie got ended. I was there. She was a fairy, <laughs> which was fun. Um, I was a sorceress and that's how our friendship started. Yeah, um, through D&D. That is so beautiful. We both went to community college at the same time. We went to UW together yeah. and now we're here. Yeah. Just by each other's side every single day. <laughs> I love that. That is that is so wholesome and beautiful. Do you still play D and D together? I don't know. Like, if 
you know Nathaniel Honey, but um, he's invited me to his D&D online event uh, in September. Are you doing it? I don't think so. I'm trying to get her to do a campaign with me. I don't know if I have time for a campaign. But she won't commit. No one will commit. That's it's, the issue with yeah, D&D. Yeah, the best thing is, is like, no one will commit. If you want to play D&D, I've got <laughs> one spot. I don't have any people, but I've got spots. He needs well, a great dungeon master, too. Yeah, I like writing. Stand and write. makes sense. Comedy. Uh, yeah. We'll put that out there for our listeners. I and mean, we have a lot of D&D fans on this podcast. So yeah. really quick before I wrap up, is there anything else either of you would like to add? Come to our open mics. We love meeting new people. Yeah. We're super friendly. Like, just come up and talk to us. The Comedy Garden is a great place to start. It's very welcoming. And the drinks there are bomb. So please come. <laughs> you better yes. not the tab as you perform. So there's always an incentive that we show up not trying to perform. <laughs> Eating somebody. Honestly, oh, yeah. it's a great incentive, too. Thanks for thanks for interviewing us. It's yeah. Fun. Oh my gosh, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for coming. We're both hilarious. Such a fun conversation to have. Really quick to uh, listeners at home, if you would like to follow along on social media, please give a follow to at The Comedy Garden on Instagram. You can also find Mary at, at Killer Set Prod. That's like the first part of producer, P-R-O-D. And you can find Annie at, at Nucle Annie, N-U-C-L-E-A-N-N-I-E on Instagram. Okay, we'll also include those in the show notes. So uh, definitely check them out. If you have ever wanted to give comedy a try, definitely highly recommend the Comedy Garden as a great place to start. It is super fun and you get drinks 30% off. So yeah, check it out. Again, thank you to Annie X and Mary Hall. You guys have been great. Well, that was a great interview. Welcome back, listeners, to Lindsay and Denny here. Yeah, that was super fun. Very informative. Learned a lot. And now we've got some of our gay news to talk about. So in this week's issue of the paper, I wrote about the writer's strike reaching its third month. So I guess let's discuss. Benny, are you up to date on what's been going on with the writer's strike lately? Not too much. Like, I, I hear snippets here and there. Well, okay. So the writer's strike started May 2nd, 2023. And this came after six weeks of negotiations between representatives of the WGA, which is the Writers Guild of America, and higher ups at all of these production companies, which includes all the major ones, really. Disney, which owns like pretty much everything. Netflix, Amazon, Hulu. And these negotiations were about a lot more than kind of what you might have seen if you're following this on TikTok like I am. So um, one of the big main things was about residuals, which is what went viral when they first went on their strike, because residuals basically are the pay that writers get for every time an episode is rerun. So if you were to like have written an episode of Friends, every time that episode of Friends would air on Comedy Central or Nick at Night or wherever those reruns are aired, you would get a sum of money. And it really helps these writers get paid with their worth because if these networks are, you know, profiting off of older TV shows that have withstood the test of time, the writers definitely deserve to continue to get paid. The actors deserve to continue to get paid. The problem is with these streaming services like Amazon Prime, Hulu, and Netflix, where you can watch entire former seasons of, let's say, Friends, and the residuals the writers get for streams are not what they would get for a re-aired 
show. So these writers are getting paid in cents or fractions of cents for shows that are making billions of dollars for a lot of these premium streaming networks. They're striking for an increase in residuals. They are also striking because the conditions under which writers work in television and specifically for these streaming companies are pretty bad. So when production want to cut costs, they cut writers initially pretty early on. So they've been trying to hire the least amount of writers possible for projects, even going as far as having mini writers rooms of staff by like three writers for writing like a whole season of a TV series, which is nuts. It means that these writers get overworked, mm-hmm. they're unpaid. And another problem, which we've seen a lot with like queer TV shows, is when a show gets cut early on, those writers are out of work. They are constantly then out of work looking for new jobs and as people are trying to hire less writers, it becomes more competitive. So it's just a mess. And then there was AI. And so now a lot of writers are concerned that to cut costs even further, they're going to lose their jobs to artificial intelligence. So a part of this contract they want signed is a promise that AI tools will not be used to replace writers, but only used as tools for writers when they choose to use those tools. So a big thing there is they want a minimum of staffing for projects so that they can stop trying to cut costs by cutting writers. Also, a minimum amount of time for projects. So if you're signed on for a TV show, you get at least like six months of paid work. If that show gets cut, you're still going to get a payout. Seems to be pretty reasonable request that these writers are wanting to, you know, be able to make a living. A lot of these people have in fact had to work side jobs, side gigs to be able to afford to continue to write. So they can't even rely on writing as their full-time career anymore because of how the industry has just kind of tanked for supporting creative writers. So all that being said, they've been backed a lot by main actors. The SAG-AFRA, which is the, the main actors guild, They have joined in the strikes as well and are also withholding their labor until the writers can get their contract signed. And just this last week, there was a pretty promising meeting between the leaders of the strike and high producers where they were going to agree to a lot of the monetary requests, including increased payment for streaming old reruns of shows. However, they were not going to agree to a minimum amount of writers for projects and a minimum expiration date. So they're still on strike. And now it's month three of the strikes. And we have to say that Hollywood has been fighting heel and toe. They've done some really nasty things. I don't know if you saw, but a couple months ago, at the height of summer, they cut down all of these palm trees that were providing shade. And now their newest tactic is services are cutting shows. So a really, really popular queer TV show that was written and starred Abby Jacobson. It's called A League of Their Own. Super great. It was a remake of the 1992 movie, but it's super queer, much more historically accurate because of that. They already kind of were facing a crisis because the second season was cut down to just four episodes and that was going to be the final season and a lot of people were really upset about that because the show was so successful and now they have announced i think it was amazon prime just now so because of the strikes they're cutting that second season completely and there's not going to be a satisfying ending to a their own so a lot of fans are outraged 
Abby Jacobson has spoken out publicly about this. She was also very supportive and a leader in the striking movement because she is a writer. She stepped out on day one. She's been documenting all the strikes on her social media, and um, she's been actually helping fund the strikes. She sold a bunch of props from Broad City to try to increase funds for the strike, and it seems like this is a very targeted move Amazon's half, so... That's all the strike news. I hope that they keep striking until they reach that fair deal, especially now that we've had such an amazing show as a casualty of the strike. Yeah, definitely. And it's it's not like these companies can't afford to pay the writers and the actors properly. The CEOs in this in these companies are making hand over fist. Cry me a river. You're going to have one less yacht. Exactly. You're going to have one less vacation home. Yeah. The writers, they do so much and also brings up, you know, a great point about how the invent of streaming has really changed the way that a lot of us consume television. I hadn't realized the effects that streaming had on writers that it's, you know, caused such a pay decrease for them. Writers that work, for instance, on a show that is an exclusively streaming show are paid significantly less than a cable exclusive show. But yeah, it's also just these producers are making bank off of streaming. I mean, we're kind of complicit in it. I subscribe to so many streaming services. And yeah, it just kind of sucks. It's also changed the way that shows, you know, get picked up. I, I think about like a lot of classic favorite shows like The Office or Parks and Recreation that didn't even catch their stride until like the second or third season. But now with the way streaming services work, if a show isn't like perfect on the second episode, which makes... A lot of queer shows really difficult to continue going. It's hard. You don't want to watch a queer uh, queer TV series if it doesn't have at least four seasons. Yeah, a lot of people like to just binge. And so few people, well, not so few. I don't know the actual stats on this. But for me, at least, I hate waiting for the next episode. I'm very much the type of person that I'll wait until a bunch of episodes accumulate and then I'll watch it all in one go. Because I just don't... I can't do it. <laughs> it's well, it's so true. And you like forget stuff or mm-hmm. I totally get that. I'm I'm the same way. And I think that that's how a lot of like young people are, too. Because we've just grown up on this. We want everything on demand. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, with the writer strike, we're going to have to wait for a lot of our favorite shows a lot longer because the ones that haven't been cut are now being delayed. Shows like Euphoria can now be expected to come at the earliest in 2025. Stranger Things final season had to delay their production so that's inevitably delayed until they can begin again god i hope they're successful though because a rising tide raises all ships and if they succeed in this this will benefit everybody in the creative industry and it doesn't you don't have to be an actor or a writer to see the benefits from this i mean you're gonna see benefits if they're successful for everyone else involved in the production of these shows it's bullshit that creatives are being exploited just because it's a highly competitive, sought-after market for people to get their foot in the door. A lot of people are desperate to get in and they're willing to, you know, there's a lot of people out there that have been willing in the past to take absurdly low pay rates, but it's just not feasible. It's just, this isn't a college unpaid internship. Yeah. This is a livelihood for people. How you can expect to get quality work without providing a livelihood for these people, the safety and security to be able to focus on this is beyond me. You know, the exploitation can only go so far. 
Exactly. And, you know, as long as people are getting rich off of these writers' words, they deserve to be getting rich, too. They don't need that extra yacht. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> they don't need those private jet planes, that they're, those private flights that they're getting. You can take economy. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned, I'm okay with waiting a couple more years by D2 for Euphoria or Stranger Things, as long as it, the writers that have created these iconic stories get paid what they're worth. It hopefully will make a better working environment for other people like me, probably. Oh, yeah, yeah. Writers. And, oh, definitely. Because you know, I've seen the effects. I've been paid for projects a cent per word. That's what we're looking at is that when you're new to this industry and you don't have very many opportunities, you take what you can get and they they'll take advantage of that. So hopefully we can find some success through this and make sure that everybody gets a decent chance to make a living off of this. You shouldn't have to work a job you hate just to be able to survive, you know? Yeah. If you love writing and you're good at it, you should be able to make a living from it. Yeah. In the meantime, though, while we're, we're going through all these delays and cancellations and everything like that, go ahead and familiarize yourself with some movies or shows or, or books that have already been written and already been produced. Go find some indie creators out there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. If you're... A comic book reader, go find some webcomic creators. If you love to read books, find some fan fiction. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But strike fan fiction. That's what I want to see. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. An <laughs> yeah. enemies to lovers kind of thing where the producer falls <laughs> in love with the leader of the writer's revolution. Yes. <laughs> Is there anything that you've been streaming, reading, watching that you want to suggest to our viewers? I've been on a bit of a Neil Gaiman kick because mm -hmm. of Good Omens. I read American Gods. I read the Good Omens book. I'm also currently watching the American Gods TV show, which is interesting. Definitely not on the same par as Good Omens. Definitely mm -hmm. a different vibe. But if you enjoyed the book American Gods, then you might really enjoy the TV show. Interesting what they're doing there. Let me think. What else? I guess just go out there and, and try to find some interesting stuff. Maybe go find some old, old films that no longer have copyright on them. Really, really, really shove it to those corporations and start, you know, read some Sherlock Holmes, the original abridged Sherlock Holmes. It's copyright free now. And then and then write some Sherlock Holmes fan fiction. Oh, because Sherlock you, and Watson. Yeah, because you can do whatever you want with the property now. So go for it. Go wild. Or I guess just stream old episodes of Radio SGN while you're at it. I guess you could do that too, yeah. Well, this has been our show, I think. A lot of bad news up front, and I apologize for that. It's like the end of days a little bit. If you're getting through it, keep going. Do it. Uh, you got it. I believe in you. Specifically you. On the, <laughs> yeah, you listener. You're our only listener. This, this show is just for you, Yeah. Wyatt. I believe in the you that believes in yourself. Thank you so much for sticking around for the rest of this podcast. We appreciate you, brave listener. Take care of yourself this week. And, I don't know, kiss and sing to your dogs. Oh, definitely. And your cats. And yes. your goldfish that are apparently like 15 years old. Um, no, they live forever, I guess. <laughs> Bye. Radio SGN is hosted by Benny Loy and Lindsay Anderson and edited by Daniel Lindsley. The music for the show is provided by TRG Banks and Jesse Spillane, or was provided for free by Anchor. Thank you so much for listening. Check us out on sgn.org.
This podcast is part of the Seattle Gay News Podcasting Network.